Well, we are uh, wrapping up our summer series this morning. Uh, We've spent the summer months looking uh, at the book of Proverbs, kind of an extended look on a number of topics. Our series in the book of Proverbs this summer was called Wisdom End, and the goal was to take a look at the Bible's practical teaching on a number of different topics. So we looked at things like wisdom and planning, wisdom and relationships, wisdom and work, wisdom and words, wisdom and wealth, uh, among other things. And today we're actually going to jump out of the book of Proverbs and into the book of Ecclesiastes for a final wisdom end. So if you have a Bible in front of you, uh, go ahead and open it to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We're going to be looking at the first 14 verses of chapter 7 this morning. But before I read those verses, I want to back up one verse in Ecclesiastes to the very last verse of chapter 6. Verse 12 of chapter 6 asks this question. It says, Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Uh, That verse asks a question, and the question of that verse is about what is good for us while we live this life, or what constitutes the good life on earth. So what is the good life? That question is is what is answered in chapter 7, but before we get there, I think it's worth reflecting on some of the answers to that question that fall short. So if we were in the book of Ecclesiastes, if we were to go back and survey it back in chapter 2, that question, what is the good life, is explored through the eyes of King Solomon. And he tries everything. He tries hedonism, the pursuit of every pleasure. He tries materialism, the acquiring of all sorts of riches and, and things. He tries workaholism, the undertaking of massive projects, and each time he concludes it is meaningless. It is like chasing after the wind. Now, when we ask the question, what is the good life? I think we all know that the Christian answer to that question will always tell us that the answer is not going to be found in those things. But I I wonder if there's a subtler error that we make when we seek to answer that question, what is the good life? And I entitled this message, Wisdom and the Better Life. I thought about entitling it, Wisdom and Your Best Life Now. But that's actually uh, very similar to, uh, to one of the best-selling Christian books of the 21st century. You may have heard of that book. It was written by Joel Osteen, the smiling pastor of America's largest church. Here's a sampling of how he presents what the good life looks like. He says, what do you see? When you look into your future, do you see yourself getting stronger, healthier, and happier? Is your life filled with God's blessing, favor, and victory? You must begin to see it if you truly hope for it to come to pass. That's his understanding. This is the good life. You get stronger and healthier and happier. Elsewhere, he says, God is in the multiplication business. It doesn't matter what your need is today. God wants to increase you. God can make you seem bigger than you really are. He can make you look more powerful. He knows how to multiply your influence, your strength, and your talent. So as the title of the book suggests, the basic premise is God wants you to have your best life now. And your best life is a life that is free from all suffering and all hardship and all financial troubles. 
That's what the good life looks like according to Joel Osteen. How does that measure up? With the Bible's definition of the good life or of the best life. So I want you to hang on to that as we read the first 14 verses in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. This is God's word and this is what it says to us. It says, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is laughter, or so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So this section that we're looking at in in Ecclesiastes this morning starts off by by saying that the day of death is better than the day of birth. So I think right away, you know, this is not going to be sort of one of the, the happy, clappy kind of passages. In fact, just reading the opening few verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 7 makes us feel like maybe we've stepped into some kind of bizarro world. Right Where up is down and forwards is backwards. And everything that we think is true about what constitutes the good life gets turned on its head. And yet I think there's something about these verses that forces us to think about a type of joy that is deeper than superficial happiness. And I entitled this message, Wisdom and the Better Life, because this passage uses a series of better-than proverbs to make its point. Nine times in these verses, it says that this is better than that. So we're going to take a look at all 14 verses, but I boiled my message down to six better-than statements. The first one is simply that substance is better than image. Verse 1 begins, a good name is better than precious ointment. Now, at the most basic level, this verse teaches that it's better to actually be good than just to smell good. It's better to be known for having good character than it is to be known for wearing lots of Old Spice, right? That's the idea here. As I put it, substance is better than image. This is a really important word in our day because our culture is obsessed with image. This is certainly true on the physical level. We could point to to lots of examples that illustrate that. Social media illustrates that. But it's true on a much deeper level as well. 
you know, within the last decade or so, there have been lots of sort of high-profile examples of people whose public image was one thing and whose private reality was something altogether different. In the sports world, we could think about someone like Lance Armstrong. His public image was that he was a seven-time Tour de France winner, a cancer survivor, an author, motivational speaker, a philanthropist. But the actual substance of his life revealed something different. He was a cheater, a blood doper, a man who essentially forced his teammates to dope as well, someone who threatened, harassed, and sued anyone who dared to blow the whistle on his activities. In the entertainment world, we could think about someone like Bill Cosby. Cosby's entire career was built around the idea of being a family-friendly comedian. The Cosby Show was the most popular show on television in the 1980s. The whole thing was built around family values. But in 2014, dozens of women came forward alleging sexual harassment. Cosby was convicted in 2018 of aggravated indecent assault. There was a massive difference between the image of his life and the substance of his life. And the church world has not been exempt to this. You can just name names. Bill Hybels, James McDonald, Mark Driscoll, Ravi Zacharias. Each of their stories is different, but each one shows that there was a massive difference between their, the image they presented and the actual substance of their life. Now, maybe those seem like extreme examples. They're all public figures. But this is really not all that uncommon. We often place far greater emphasis on image than we do on substance. And this verse reminds us a good name is better than precious ointment. And it might help us to remember that in the ancient world, scented oils and fragrances were valuable commodities. This was worth a fortune. So this proverb here is similar to the one we find in Proverbs 22.1 where it says a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and favor is better than silver or gold. So far from this just being a simple proverb about being good versus smelling good, the verse is diving at what or driving at what's really important in life. And verse 1 is an interesting verse because the full verse says this, a good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, in Hebrew poetry, the second line usually completes the thought or intensifies the idea of the first half of the verse or the first line. So when we, when we read this verse, it's not really clear. How does that second line complete that thought? How is the day of death better than the day of birth? And what does that have to do with the difference between a good name and precious ointment? And I think the answer is that death will reveal what was really important to us. See, there's no covering up the substance of our life once we've passed. All of it gets laid bare. You've probably heard the story of the two brothers who were well-known around their town for their crooked business dealings, their underworld connections. They were as mean and cold-blooded as you could imagine, and one day one of the brothers died. The surviving brother wanted to give his dead brother a funeral that was fit for a king, so he called the funeral home. He made all the arrangements. He called the town's minister and made him an offer he couldn't refuse. He said, look, I will give you $50,000 to put a new roof on the church 
if when you eulogize my brother, you call him a saint. And the minister agreed. The whole town turned out for the funeral, and the minister began, the man you see in the coffin was a vile and debauched individual. He was a liar, a thief, a deceiver, a manipulator, a reprobate, a hedonist. He destroyed the fortunes, careers, and lives of countless people in this city, some of whom are here today. This man did every dirty, rotten thing you can think of. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. (laughs) See, the point again is that substance is better than image. And in the end, the substance of our lives will be revealed at our death. So the question is, which one are we focused on? Are we focused on the image of our life or the substance of our life? I came across a tweet some time ago that said, your Google search history is the real you. How true is that? I mean, there's a temptation for all of us to pretend to be something we're not. There's a temptation to spend more time working on our image than we do working on our character. And the solution is not to give up, but to make sure we're striving to be people of substance, not people of image. Second better than I want to give you is that a funeral is better than a festival. Now, most of you will have a hard time believing that. But this is essentially the point made in verses 2 to 4. Listen to those verses again. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind. And the living will lay at the heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now, when we read those verses, we can't just read them in isolation. The Christian life is a life of of joy. And even if you read through the book of Ecclesiastes in its entirety, you will see that that idea where joy is commended, that's woven all through the book. So in chapter 5, we read this, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun during the few days of life that God has given him, for this is his lot." Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them, to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. Or in chapter 8, we we will come across this verse where it says, And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So joy is commended. And we know the New Testament has a lot to say about the fact that we can and ought to find joy in all circumstances. So these verses are not saying, look, we should go around like Eeyore with sort of this dark cloud following us around. Gary Thomas says this about the dangers of that approach to the faith. He says, when the church teaches a glum faith of responsibility, a faith devoid of joy, when the pulpit treats pleasure like some sort of spiritual leprosy, when people of faith speak as though they're anti-sex, anti-humor, anti-fun, anti-anything that brings pleasure, we risk fostering the kind of devotion the Bible shockingly and without reservation rejects. So the Bible is for joy and for pleasure. But that's balanced with this idea of going to the house of mourning. 
So I took a couple of weeks off in August. Uh, we spent one of those weeks in Whistler on a family vacation. And on the first day of that vacation, one of my kids asked, is Vacation Lee here? I love Vacation Lee because he's fun to hang out with. I mean, he will do things on a moment's notice. He will stay up late and play games. He doesn't have a care in the world. I love Vacation Lee, but he can't be around all year long. You don't want Vacation Lee to be your pastor because he doesn't live in reality. In Vacation Lee's world, no one has cancer. No one's marriage is falling apart. No one is shipwrecking their faith. No one is suffering. So there's tremendous wisdom in these verses because they point us to the stark realities of life. Some time ago, I read a book entitled Getting the Blues, What Blues Music Teaches Us About Suffering and Salvation. I I know it sounds like a really upbeat book. But in that book, the author makes the point, while the problem in Narnia was that it was always winter but never Christmas, the problem in many evangelical churches is that it's always Christmas but never Good Friday. I mean, we just don't talk about suffering. The main point made throughout that book is, is that too often we approach the Christian faith as though everything is supposed to be upbeat and happy and clappy. And we forget that suffering has a lot more to teach us. Now, when I say a funeral is better than a festival, I don't mean that this is what you should be doing on Friday nights instead of getting together with your friends. I simply mean that we need to look at life seriously. We need to remind ourselves that life is short. And these verses have something specific in mind. Verse 2 says, It's better to go into the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. So rather than just kind of party away our time or escape reality, we need to give sober reflection to the fact that one day each of us will die. Psalm 90 is a psalm written by Moses. And in verse 10 of that psalm, he says this, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Then in verse 12, he says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. You want to know how you get a heart of wisdom? You start to number your days. Martin Luther paraphrased that verse with, Lord, teach us that we all must die. I don't know if you've ever numbered your days. Verse 10 says that the length of our days is 70 years or maybe 80 if we have the strength. Still fairly close to the average lifespan. In case you're wondering, 70 years equals 25,565 days, including leap years. If you're 40, you've already used up 15,000 of those days. Bruce Waltke was one of my professors at Regent College, and I had the privilege of hearing him preach on Psalm 90 on the occasion of his 70th birthday. And he said that the first time he taught through that psalm, he decided to number his days. He took the 25,565 days, he subtracted the number of days he had already lived, and he came up with a total. 
And then every day during the time that he spent with the Lord, he would simply cross off one of those days from the list and he would have a new total. This is how long I have left. And he said that it gave him a new vigor to approach. And he said he did that until the day he told his wife what he was doing. And she said, Bruce, that's really morbid. Will you stop it? But, but I think there's wisdom in that. A funeral is better than a festival in the sense that going to the house of mourning has a way of clarifying or crystallizing our thinking about life. One of the occupational hazards of being a pastor is that I attend more than my share or fair share of funerals. On back-to-back weekends this spring, I presided over two funerals for people 40 and under. One of those was the husband of a couple I had married just three years prior. See, spending time in the house of mourning has a way of clarifying what's important in life in a way that a hundred parties could never do. Third thing we learn about the better life here is that wounds are better than kisses. This is the message of verses 5 and 6 where it says, It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. I took the heading for this point from Proverbs 27, 6, which says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. The simple truth of these verses is that wisdom's rebuke is better than folly's laughter. See, the wise person is not the person who laughs everything off. In fact, one of the main differences between the wise person and the fool is how they respond to correction. We've seen this throughout the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is devoted to wisdom. The primary way it distinguishes between a wise person and a fool has to do with how they respond to correction. Just listening to, listen to a sampling of verses from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 13.1 says, A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Or Proverbs 9.8, Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Proverbs 12.15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. And Proverbs 15.5 says, A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. See, wounds are better than kisses. We could just pile up the Proverbs. That's what they teach. It's better to hear the truth from a friend than just to listen to the song of fools. You know, the job of a prophet was to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And we need to receive both of those things when we come to church. When you look at the ministry of Jesus, you see that he did this all the time. We can think about the way Jesus interacted with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. He both challenged her wrong thinking, her wrong living, and also graciously offered her the kind of life that only he could give. The contrast here in Ecclesiastes is between the rebuke of the wise and the song of the fools. Verse 7 describes the laughter of fools as the crackling of thorns under a pot. 
What does that mean? What, what, what's the picture that it's driving at there? Well, this description comes from the fact that a fire that you make with thorns will start quickly. It'll make lots of noise. But it won't last very long or provide the kind of warmth that we actually need. And the point of application for us is to remember we live in an age of superficiality. You can amuse yourself with inane YouTube or TikTok videos, but don't expect to find a lot of wisdom there. One of the values of being part of a church or being part of a community group is that you grow because you experience the teaching and admonishment of others. That Paul talks about in the book of Colossians, that is a thousand times better than the song of fools we're exposed to for most of the day. So wounds are better than kisses. A fourth truth we discover here about the better life is that the narrow road is better than any of the alternatives. Verse 7 says, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Now, it might not be obvious the first time you read it, but what that verse is saying is that there are numerous ways that we can be led astray. One of the tests we face is the test of adversity. Oppression drives the wise into madness. So this chapter has been extolling the virtues of hardship and how suffering has much to teach us. But every time we encounter hardship or suffering, we're faced with a test. How do we respond to that? We can be driven into madness. That's the way some people respond to adversity in their lives. At the first sign of trouble or hardship, they're ready to abandon the whole enterprise. Adversity is a test. It reveals that the faith of some was as shallow as a kiddie pool. I mean, there's no depth at all. But there's another type of test we face. The verse says oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. So if adversity is one of the tests we face, then prosperity is another type of test we face. And we've all been faced with decisions where we have to decide between doing the right thing and making a quick buck. And this verse reminds us, this is not a small issue. The bribe corrupts the heart. So what starts out as a small compromise ends up altering the entire course of our lives. This is why we are repeatedly warned about falling prey to sins like covetousness. So Jesus will say, and he said to them, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So some of you might be facing a test of adversity right now. You might be dealing with a a hardship of some sort, relational, financial, health-wise. And the difficulty or the test facing you is that the the temptation is to give up and say, look, my faith doesn't seem to make any difference here. Others of you might be facing the test of prosperity. You've experienced an extended period of blessing from God. But it hasn't produced any humility or gratitude in your heart. Either way, the call is to return to the narrow road of discipleship that Christ has called us to. Fifth thing we discover about the better life is that a wide-angle view is better than a narrow one. Listen again to verses 8 to 10. Better is the end of a thing than, than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. 
Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. So there are really two ways that these verses make the point that a wide-angle view is better than a narrow one. The first way is by showing that patience is better than pride. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. The next verse then goes on to warn us about the dangers of anger. And the type of anger it's describing is a particular type of anger related to the anger that comes from wanting something and not getting it right away. It's this kind of impatient anger that resides in us. And we live in an instant society. We want instant results. We we want instant gratification. Even instant authenticity is what we're after. I think we all know, everyone in this room knows, that the 1980s was probably the best decade for things like fashion. Right? One of the trends I remember from the 80s was stonewashed jeans. Right? The idea was these jeans... They felt like you had worn them a long time, and they looked like you had worn them for a long time already, even though you just, you just bought them. We, we still see this today. I mean, today it's the ripped jeans, right? You want to wear ones that look like they've already been used, like you're an auto mechanic or something, even though you're not. But we see it in furniture. I mean, walk into a furniture store. You'll find brand new furniture that's been antiqued or distressed. And the goal is to create something that's brand new, but it looks like it's a family heirloom. Now, there's nothing wrong with that when it comes to fashion and to furniture. The problem comes when we want everything in life to have the feel of authenticity right out of the box. This is true of our relationships. I mean, you know, when you see that older couple at the beach, you know, they've been married 50, 60 years. They're walking hand in hand and everyone says, oh, that's what, that's the picture, right? That's what we want. You have to remember it took them a lifetime of experiencing joys and sorrows together to get there. If you want to have a happy marriage, you have to take a long-term view. Same thing is true of your involvement in church. If you have an impatient spirit, if you expect everything to just kind of click instantly and have the depth of relationship that actually takes time to develop, you're going to be disappointed. You have to take a long-term view. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. Verse 10 then makes the point that a wide-angle view is better than a narrow one in a different way. It says, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. So if verses 8 and 9 caution us about pessimism about the future, you know, when I look where I am now and what I have now, I'm never going to get there. Verse 10 then cautions us about nostalgia for the past. Some people love to talk about the good old days, the way things used to be. And look, it is great to have fond memories of the past. It's great to have seasons of your life that you look back on and say, remember when. But this verse says it's not wise to dwell on some imaginary golden era of the past. You know, why were the former days better than these? A wide-angle view is better than a narrow one. The final thing we see here is that wisdom makes everything better. 
And this is what we see in verses 11 to 14. Listen to 11 and 12. It says, Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Sorry, then 13 and 14 say, Consider the work of God. Who can, who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So we began this series with wisdom and planning. We looked at a passage in Proverbs chapter 16. That message was really about the sovereignty of God. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. We make plans God has the last word. These verses take us back to that starting place. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? In that first message, I gave you a definition of wisdom, that wisdom is the skill to navigate life under God's rule. See, wisdom is not a bunch of tips and tricks and life hacks. Wisdom comes from a relationship with God. It comes from us submitting ourselves to God's sovereignty, to his rule. Proverbs 1.7 is the foundational verse in the book of Proverbs. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. With some variation, that phrase occurs 18 times in the book of Proverbs. It's obviously a key concept. Wisdom comes from God, and we cannot possess wisdom apart from a relationship with God who is the source of wisdom. And I said wisdom makes everything better. So what constitutes the good life? Well, listen to the way the passage ends. It says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made one the one as well as the other. See, the good life doesn't consist in what in our circumstances, whether this happens or that happens. The good life consists in the relationship we have with God in the midst of whatever we're facing. Think about the connection between that verse and what the Apostle Paul tells us in the New Testament. Here's what he says. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So regardless of what we might be facing today, what we need is wisdom. And wisdom comes from a relationship with God. So let's pray for an increase in that today. Father, we want to thank you for your word that instructs us in so many different ways, in so many practical ways, and even as we think about the nature of our lives, Lord, I pray you would grant us your wisdom. I pray that whatever we might be facing, we would first turn to you and seek your face in the midst of it. God, we commit ourselves to you. We desire, we ask for the wisdom you tell us to ask for, and we pray you would grant that to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.